The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your suffering, for the cross, for your resurrection, and for the gift of our redemption. We thank you for the sign that these things are, that we can be saved and reconciled to God our Father. I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning, teach us from the life of Jonah, from the lives of the Ninevites, that we might hear your word and walk in your ways. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we are back in the book of Jonah this morning as we continue our series of sermons entitled Running from Grace. You can find Jonah chapter 3 on page 775 of the Red Bibles, and I do hope that you'll turn there with me. Our story began in chapter 1 when the Word of God came to the prophet Jonah. God was sending him to preach to the people of Nineveh, the sworn enemies of Israel. Instead of obeying, however, Jonah ran in the complete opposite direction. He boarded a ship for Spain and headed below the decks in order to hide from God. Well, this he soon discovered was a rather foolish thing to do. God sent a storm. Jonah was tossed overboard, swallowed by an enormous fish, and three days later he was vomited unceremoniously back onto the land that he had fled from. God was not going to let him go. So after one of the most famous detours in all of literature, chapter 3 begins in the same way as chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So God gives Jonah a second chance, and verse 3 tells us that Jonah takes it. But our prophet was less than enthusiastic. As Josh showed us last week, Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish revealed a man who was grateful to have his life spared, but who was unwilling to acknowledge his rebellion and unmoved by the plight of idol-worshiping foreigners. Unconcerned by Jonah's feelings, God sent him anyway, and this time, having learned his lesson, he went. Nineveh, we are told in verse 3, was an exceedingly great city. Not only was it physically imposing and heavily populated, it was a place that God cared about. And that, more than anything, is what made it great. Nineveh was one of the principal cities of the Assyrian Empire. A century before Jonah's visit, the Assyrians had conquered Israel, ravaged her land, and taken slaves. Now, the Assyrians were known across the ancient world for their ruthlessness. They were feared and pretty much resented by everyone. And that makes God's interest in them all the more 
remarkable. We can almost hear Jonah asking God, why do you care? Just destroy them already. They don't deserve a thing from you. Well, perhaps this history explains the brevity of Jonah's sermon when he finally got to Nineveh. Venturing into the city, he calls out in verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think some of you could probably get, to use, get used to sermons of that length. But you know, Jonah doesn't mention God. He doesn't open the door to the possibility of repentance or forgiveness. He doesn't seem to care what impact his message will have. And what happens next is absolutely shocking. Verse 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, the Ninevites had no history with the God of Israel. They didn't even know his name, but they chose to believe him. Such is the power of God's word. And having believed God, verse 5 continues, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's word of judgment, as it turned out, it was like a spark that ignited the dry tender of the Ninevites' hearts, leading them to wholehearted repentance. And that, that fire, it spread from the common man all the way up to the palace. So verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, even though he's unsure, that it will do any good, the king leads the city in repentance. The Ninevites humble themselves, and incredibly, God relents. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, that's, that's simply astonishing. The sworn enemies of God's people have been sent a prophet, through him, God has given them his word, welcomed their repentance, and turned back his hand of judgment. What are we to make of this? Now, the narrative is incredibly sparse in some ways, and it's exceedingly detailed in others. In others. So we learn nothing more of Jonah's proclamation than a single line. Perhaps it was just a single line. And yet we hear in detail the king's response and proclamation to the people. In this chapter, Jonah recedes into the background while God and the people of Nineveh take center stage as the main actors. And as we reflect on this part of the book of Jonah, I want to ask two questions that I hope will lead us to see the significance of what we've read and how it might apply to us. First, we're going to ask, what did the people of Nineveh know? What did the people of Nineveh know? And then second, we're going to ask, what did God reveal? 
So what did the people of Nineveh know? What, what did they know that led them to act the way that they did? Well, the sparseness of the text is frustrating at first. It tells us almost nothing about who these people were, what they believed, and why they acted the way they did. It's not clear that they knew even which God they were dealing with or that they had abandoned belief in other gods when they chose to listen to this one. Nor do we know what happens to them over the long term. In its sparseness, however, this chapter gives us just enough to draw a few very important conclusions. So what did the Ninevites know? First, they knew to fear God's judgment. They were smart enough to be scared. Now, not many people fear God's judgment these days. People are afraid of global warming, terrorism, pandemics, and politicians, but they're not afraid of God. We are so busy analyzing other threats to our existence that we have forgotten that there is a God more gracious and more terrible than any earthly power. Now, the ancients, they knew better. They inhabited a world of inexplicable and terrifying wonder, a world that they could not understand where everything strange was thought to be somehow divine. We, by contrast, live in a world that we think we've figured out. We can predict the weather. You all had an alert on your phone this morning before the storm came. We can fly to the moon. We have unspooled DNA. Our understanding is truly astonishing, but you know it, it masks our deeper ignorance. We don't really know why humans are so different from the animals. We can see light from stars that died billions of years ago, but we have no idea what caused the Big Bang. We cannot account for the coexistence of entropy and evolution. While the ancients naively associated everything inexplicable with the divine, we moderns tend to assume human sovereignty over the world while downplaying our ignorance and dismissing the divine. We don't fear the judgment of God because if He exists, we're not really sure He cares. We live in an I'm okay, you're okay world where if there is a God, all He wants is for us to be our best selves and to leave Him alone, please. But that's not the God of the Bible. From the opening pages of Scripture, we are told that there is a God who made all things, that He is astonishingly good and unwaveringly just, He's full of compassion and he punishes evil. He's pure and yet he loves the impure. He's patient but he is definitely not a pushover. And his judgment is to be feared. This is a God that can't be ignored. Nor can he be appeased. He must be dealt with on his own terms. And according to his terms, wickedness must be destroyed. That's why when the emissary of the Almighty God proclaimed that disaster was coming, the Ninevites were terrified. They knew what they were guilty of, and they fell on their faces in repentance. Now, we need to take this to heart. Does your sin disturb you? Does it lead to confession and repentance? Or does it not even register on your conscience? 
Are you too busy justifying yourself and your actions to others to consider the justice of God? You know, this is precisely what Jesus accused the Pharisees of doing in Jerusalem in our gospel reading. They knew God, but they didn't fear him. And so Jesus promised the people of Nineveh would rise up on the day of judgment to condemn the Pharisees for their rebellion. We do well to remember that God is just and will one day come to judge. And we do well to listen to his word. The Ninevites knew to fear God's judgment. They also knew that belief required action. Well, they, when they heard that God was going to overthrow the city, the Ninevites immediately went into action. They donned sackcloth and they began a fast. And what's fascinating about this is that as far as we know from the Assyrian literature of this time, neither fasting nor the wearing of sackcloth were particularly common among the Assyrians. They sacrificed to their gods and they made offerings, but they didn't typically fast, nor did they abase themselves by wearing sackcloth. Maybe Jonah told them what to do. Or perhaps they knew intuitively that this God, this God required a different kind of respect. Either way, the Ninevites understood that God's word demanded a response. And that response wasn't limited just to showing regret. It included the wholesale rejection of evil. The king decreed, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. In the face of God's judgment, the people of Nineveh repented of their sin, changed their ways, and threw themselves on his mercy. So for the second time in the book of Jonah, here we have a group of pagans who respond to God's command appropriately, humbly and obediently. It was the sailors back in chapter 1, now it's the Ninevites in chapter 3, and both of these groups stand in stark contrast to God's prophet Jonah, who remains a paragon of self-righteousness. This is a contrast we need to attend to. Jesus picks up on it throughout the Gospels where he implicitly accuses the Pharisees of the same self-righteousness as Jonah. And it's something that we ourselves are susceptible to, having experienced the kindness and the forgiveness of God it is easy for us to take him for granted and to grow cold to the call for obedience. We're content to get our doctrine right while ignoring godly discipline. True faith, however, requires true repentance. The conversion not just of our hearts and minds, but of our attitudes and our actions. As James will say in the New Testament, faith without works is dead. It makes no sense to say that you believe God and then to go on with life as normal. Belief requires action. And the Ninevites knew this. Now there's one last detail in the Ninevites' response that tells us something else about what they knew. So when the king, I wonder if you noticed this, when the king called for sackcloth and fasting, he required it not just of the people but of the flocks and the herds as well. So apparently, the Ninevites went out into the fields around the city, rounded up their animals, put them into pens so that they couldn't eat, and then covered them in sackcloth. That is so strange. That is so strange. Nowhere else in the Bible are we told that this happens. What is going on? You know, what I think this shows us 
is that the Ninevites knew that their wickedness had sullied everything. Remember, God had promised to overturn the entire city. It wasn't just individual human lives that were bound to bear the punishment of God. It was everything. The Ninevites understood that their rebellion put absolutely everything at stake, even the animals that they raised for food and for clothing. What's amazing is that it, it turns out that they were right. And Paul writes about this in Romans 8, where he explains that all of creation groans for the redemption of the world in Jesus Christ because all of creation has suffered the consequences of the rebellion of humankind. Too often, I think, we treat God's good creation like a strip mine. We plunder the world as if it were something to be used or to be conquered instead of stewarding it as the gift that it is. And so we totally ignore the destructive impact of our sin on animals and on ecosystems. Creation bears the burden of our sin while we think only of ourselves. But somehow, somehow the Ninevites knew better. And lest you think that they were going overboard and donning cattle with sackcloth, let me draw your attention to the weirdest last line of any book in the entire Bible. At the end of chapter 4, God affirms His own concern for their cattle by mentioning them specifically to Jonah as objects of His affection. God cares not just about saving human beings, but about redeeming His creation. And that's why when Jesus returns, He will return not to whisk us away to some far-off place, but to renew and to restore the world that He's made. He cares about cattle. The Ninevites knew that their sin had spoiled everything. And in seeking God's favor, they showed this by calling their flocks and their herds to join them in their fast. So what did the people of Nineveh know? They, they knew to fear God's judgment, that belief required action, and that their sin had sullied everything. So they believed God's word and they repented of their sin. What then does God reveal about himself in this chapter? And that's our second question, and I'll answer it far more briefly than the first. First, God revealed the power of his word. So there's one little line of prophecy in the entire book of Jonah. And the whole book, at one line, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's pretty much all doom and gloom. There's no invitation to repentance. There's no good news at the end. And yet this one little line, it leads to the rescue of 120,000 people and their cattle. So Jonah, Jonah is a self-centered, Assyrian-hating racist who is only there because God forced him. He is ostentatiously unenthusiastic about his mission. And as far as we can tell, he limits his message to a word of judgment. But it is God's word. It is God's word of judgment. And because it is God's word, it's powerful and it's effective. God's word is just as powerful today. And it's been handed down to us in Scripture. It has the power to change our lives. 
and the lives of those around us. That's why we read it, study it, memorize it, preach from it, and share it with those who don't yet believe. It really does have the power to change the world. In this chapter, God reveals the power of His Word. He also reveals the nature of His love. So you got to remember, the Ninevites were bad people. These were bad people. They had conquered and persecuted God's chosen people. They had a well-deserved reputation across the ancient Near East for, create, for creative brutality. There was really nothing appealing about them. But, but God loved them. And He loved them because He had made them and they were His. He wanted to spare them His wrath, and so He invited them to repent. Can you see that no one falls outside the love of God? We are all subject to His judgment, and we all stand within reach of His saving embrace. The good news is that God loves bad people. He loved the Ninevites, and He loved Jonah. He loves that family member, friend, or neighbor whom you despise or have written off or have given up hoping for, and He loves you as well. God sent His own Son into the world in order to die for our sins, not because He owes us or because He had to, but because He loves us as His own, like a mother holding her newborn child. So what does God reveal in chapter 3? That His Word is powerful and His love abounding. Back at the end of chapter 2, Jonah concluded his prayer from the belly of the fish by proclaiming that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's true, and chapter 3 proves it. And this ought to change the way we think. Is there someone in your life that you've given up hoping for? Someone you fear might be beyond the love of God. If God can soften the hearts of the people of Nineveh, He can soften the heart of your son, your spouse, your friend, your father. Or maybe you've wondered whether you of all people could ever be of any use to God. Whether you will ever have the ability or the courage or the opportunity to do anything meaningful. Well, if God can use Jonah who ran away, hid, and then grumbled all the way to Nineveh, he can definitely use you. Or perhaps you're hearing, you're hearing about the reality of judgment and the power of God's love for the first time. You've been curious about God but not known him, and you still have so many questions you wonder if it's maybe too late to start. So let me assure you that the God who cared about the Ninevites and cared about Jonah, cares about you as well. And anyone who loves you that much, well, it's never too late to get to know them. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the power of your word and the abundance of your love. We thank you that we have your word today and that we can experience your love through your son, our Savior, Jesus. 
May we know as the Ninevites did, the reality of judgment, the power of evil to sully everything around us. May we know the truth that they knew that repentance requires action. Be honored in our midst and may we follow you faithfully and well this day for the glory of your name. Amen.